0: You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Peter Burke, who is a professor of history at Cambridge University also the author of a number of books, most recent of which is this one here, Ignorance, A a Global History. Before that, there's this book, The Polymath, a cultural history from Leonardo da Vinci to Susan Sontag. But he's also got a whole bunch of other books, The Art of Conversation. We've got What is the History of Knowledge? We've got The Italian Renaissance, we've got the French Historical Revolution, cultural hybridity. That's only, I think, a subset of the books that you've written. Welcome, Peter.
1: Yeah, I think I've written 34 books now, though there's an, there could be a quarrel about how long does a text have to be really to be called a book, and some of mine are baseball. But Ignorance and po- the polymath are full-length.
0: Yeah. But I think that you're best known as the major proponent of the history of knowledge. And I wanted to dig into this, because what exactly is the history of knowledge? I think you you quote Peter Drucker from 1993, saying that there's no such thing as a history of knowledge, but there needs to be.
1: Yeah, because I think it was in the 1980s that a few historians began to call themselves Historians of knowledge. And most of them were trained as historians of science. And they'd become uncomfortable with the label history of science, especially if they were working on a period before the so called scientific revolution or if they were working on areas outside the West. And they didn't want to say that people in these other periods and places had scientific knowledge in a hard sense, but they didn't want to dismiss what their discussions of the natural world either. So it seemed better to widen the history of science into the history of knowledge. But that left an opportunity for historians of the humanities, which is what I do much more of the time, to call ourselves historians of knowledge and to join up with them. And I found it a very useful um, framework for thinking about problems like specialization, which we're getting more, more specialized every decade. What do we gain by this? What do we lose by this? you like that was the inspiration between writing these books and the curious thing. I began with rather general books, A Social History of Knowledge um, from Gutenberg, To Diderot, and then on from the Encyclopaedia to Wikipedia. And then, only afterwards, I decide I want to go on with this, but I need new angles. I'm going to write more specific studies from now on. And so I began with exiles and expatriates. Did they make a distinctive contribution to knowledge? Not enough to say that all those German-speaking Jewish emigres who arrived in both Britain and the United States after 1933. They clearly made contributions to knowledge, but what, was, what interested me, could one link those contributions to the fact that they were not living in the place that they had grown up? Um, it's a problem of detachment, very well discussed by one of them, Karl Mannheim who was a double exile because he was a Hungarian who um, migrated to Germany during the white terror of Admiral Horty. Uh, He fetched up in Germany, which suited him very well until 1933. Then he had to move on to uh, Britain, which didn't suit him so well. He always found the English a bit of a problem, especially English intellectuals. Um, They weren't Philosophical and cool enough. They were over he thought. So he didn't have such a good landing. But I think having lived in the three different cultures, that gives him the detachment to see that the social roots of certain ideas. He kept stressing the social situation in which ideas are developed. Situated knowledge. And I find it very curious that reading the work of today's American feminists, and they talk about situated knowledge, and that they're thinking this time about gender. That's absolutely right. But they don't seem to notice that what they have done is to adapt a concept of Karl Mannheim, who was thinking of social situatedness in a social class, in a generation in a period. And they're talking about gender situatedness. But they never put in a footnote simply acknowledging they owe something to him. They've done something original. They've picked up the ball. They've been running with it in a new direction.
0: But they did pick up the ball from him. So what counts as knowledge? I mean, you talk about how the Greeks had all of these different words for knowledge, right? Like techne and gnosis and and you know in English knowledge has a much wider scope. But if we limit ourselves to the kind of knowledge that is explicit and recorded, then we'll see this massive exponential increase in the amount of knowledge. But there's all these forms of knowledge that are not written down, right that are what Polanyi called tacit knowledge is the study of the history of knowledge limited to the explicit knowledge, or do we have to take into account these other forms of knowledge?
1: I find the proliferation of adjectives added to the word knowledge both valuable and alarming. It's valuable because fine distinctions are always in order when one writes history as when one writes on other subjects. But it's alarming because it seems to be a sign of specialization, which is or what I would call hyper-specialization. I'm not against specialization. It's absolutely necessary. Uh, Most discoveries wouldn't be made these days without it. But it's the specialist who doesn't look beyond the uh, limits of his or her own discipline that worries me. In fact, I don't use most of the distinctions in my books, but I am very concerned with, in the case of ignorance, not only book with what people strongly want not to know certain things. Can be global warming, can be the Holocaust, all sorts of things that some people don't want to know about. And that's a different kind of ignorance from the other one, because just as there's a proliferation of terms to describe different kinds of knowledge, there's an equal proliferation of terms with the minus sign attached all these different ignorances so many that I had to attach a glossary to the book. But as you will have noticed, several different adjectives refer to the same process. This is what happens in an age of specialization. It's the rediscovery of America. In each discipline, somebody thinks, we here are the first people to make this distinction. But if they only read about what's going on somewhere else, they would realize they
0: have allies or colleagues
1: or rivals, whatever you care
0: to call them. And you talk about the kind of raw knowledge and, and cooked knowledge, right? I mean, we sometimes in the field of data science talk about the difference between data and information, and you talk about the difference between information and knowledge. I mean, it's clear that the amount of data has expanded geometrically. I mean, more, they say more data has been created in the last year than was created through all of human history. But I mean, has the expansion of of knowledge kept up? I mean, is it fair to say that the aggregate amount of knowledge in the world has been increasing also at a rapid clip? I like to keep things simple. And so
1: I've been working with a binary opposition, information which I will treat as a synonym for raw data and knowledge where the the data have been cooked, that is, they've been verified, they've been classified, and so on. And of course, information is not a lot of use until we work on it in that kind of way. The, it's interesting how the British BBC has a reaction, recent reaction to the spread of fake news uses the term verification much more, and in the broadcasts, they say. We are not quite in a position to be sure about this, but there is information coming from Russia that, and so on. And then there is a problem that I think information or data are coming in at a rate which is too fast for all the humans who are concerned with this to digest the stuff. Without digesting it, it doesn't become knowledge. You can't rely on it. It's not being verified. You can't find it because it's not being classified, and so on. And Of course, other ages suffered from information scarcity. But for some time, I would say for centuries, the problem is getting more and more acute. We've been suffering from information glut and the consequent lag between it circulating and people working on it to turn it into knowledge.
0: I love how you quote all these people like T.S. Eliot talking about drowning in information, right? It seems like people have been drowning in information for a long time.
1: Yes. The earliest complaints I know, apart from one reference in the Old Testament, the main ones follow the invention of printing, and that's not an accident. There's this Italian who says, books are being published so fast, I don't even have time to read the titles, let alone just to read the books. And of course, it's much more true today, but we don't even try to read all the titles. If 40,000 new titles are published just in Britain in one year, I'm never even going to see more than a few hundred titles and read only a small proportion of those. But that's everybody's problem now.
0: Yeah, I love how you quote Thomas De Quincey, who said that the books were arriving on his doorstep faster than he can read them, and and this was before Amazon. <laughs> I, I def, I can definitely identify with uh, with that problem. That's it, and at the time, but I guess the the question I would have is, if the aggregate amount of knowledge is, is increasing, is the average amount of knowledge that a single person has in their possession. I mean, is that sort of a constant or is the division of labor making people stupid? You, know, you hear these complaints about how people are getting stupider and stupider, presumably because they're outsourcing a lot of their expertise, right?
1: Yeah, no, in, in, individuals sometimes work by themselves. But then I think a lot of knowledge could not be acquired without the help of institutions. And so institutions have this double role because without them, a lot of knowledge couldn't accumulate, but if we want if we're interested in new knowledge, which means thinking fresh thoughts, institutions tend not to encourage that. Some institutions actively discourage in the fifteenth and sixteenth centuries in the universities, the universities thought that their job was preserving knowledge and transmitting the tradition, and there was a, a built-in institutional suspicion of people with new ideas. And in the religious language of the 13th century, that, that, were, that these were heretics, and it was individuals thinking by themselves for themselves were an object of suspicion for many centuries. And a bit of that survives think of the attitude of professors in old disciplines to the creation of new disciplines. In my own university, sociology had quite a long fight to be taken seriously. The supporters even imported an American sociologist, Edward Chills, one of the most distinguished sociologists of his time, to support the campaign. But Ed, who was a conservative at heart, and when he'd been elected a fellow of the most traditional Cambridge College, Peter House, he actually then opposed founding a new department in Cambridge called Sociology. It's very ironic. It took another generation for Anthony Giddens, who was very good at university politics as well as being a widely read sociologist. He managed to get and this new department through the different committees that had to consider the creation of a department. So that's the 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 dark side of institutions. But working in a Cambridge college, I'm made very conscious of the positive side of institutions, supportive colleagues, funds for research. I love institutions, but I do see that they have
0: faults in the past and even i'm afraid some faults in the present well you know this book on polymaths i i really enjoyed this because you know you talk about all my favorite people right i mean the, the folks that i love reading are these people that have this breadth of knowledge but i wanted to pin down exactly what makes someone a polymath i mean is it about the sheer quantity of of knowledge that they have or is it uh, about the kind of well-roundedness, or the kind of diversity of types of of knowledge that they possess. And and then also, being a polymath is not considered a good thing anymore. So these words, dilettante and amateur, right? These used to actually have sort of a positive valence, and now those are sort of terms of dismissal, right? I don't know what psychologists
1: would think about my
0: amateurism in their field, but I did get
1: to think... there is a special psychology of the polymath. It's not only the obvious point that they've got a much greater curiosity than other people, and that drives them to study a variety of different things when other people are happy to settle down and study one. Of course, they have to be workaholics, and ideally, they you shouldn't sleep more than about four hours a night, if you want to be a successful polymath, there are plenty of examples in my five hundred of these people who would work a fourteen or sixteen-hour day, think nothing of it. And then you've got to have this taste for a kind of transgression, and you you enjoy going over disciplinary boundaries. You enjoy, at least in the 19th, 20th centuries. This is clear. You enjoy shocking your colleagues who think that you're inevitably superficial if you stray beyond the limits of a single discipline, forgetting that disciplines are historical inventions. They come into existence for very particular reasons in particular places and times, and it would be perfectly possible to cut up the world of knowledge in a totally different way. But the force of tradition. In Cambridge, archaeology and anthropology share a department. That made good sense in the 19th century, because archaeologists studied peoples who didn't have writing, and anthropologists studied peoples without writing. But these days, it doesn't make any sense. But nobody's going to go to the trouble of going to these committees and trying to... um, either divide them or have one of them join another department or anything like that. Um, So very often it turns out that in a university, the best thing is, as far as you can, ignore the fact that there are these walls around departments and polymaths are, uh, among other things, people who are very good at... Evading these constraints, building bridges from one discipline to another. This was still possible in the 17th century, would study all these different subjects at more or less the same time. Leibniz is a great example. These days, I think one has to be satisfied with becoming a serial polymath. And so you're trained in one discipline and you jump from that to a neighboring one but then you're not satisfied and you jump again and again. Which means that you teach yourself most of what you know. But then, what is a university for? It's to teach people to teach themselves. And so, in that sense, if you're the academic world isn't so unfavorable in principle, it's just this empirical fact. That there's a wall between the department of physics and the department of chemistry, and so on. That the campus is is full of these walls, but it isn't impossible to jump over if you sufficiently interested, try hard enough.
0: I mean, is it that they are more curious, or that it's a kind of different type of curiosity, right? Because you could certainly be very curious and just want to dig deep and deeper into a particular topic, right? Yeah and polymaths are constantly
1: put down by their narrower colleagues. Uh, he's just superficial, because they would say it's impossible to have a deep knowledge of everything. That's true, but the, even the polymaths um, are not attempting to know everything. They're sometimes described as somebody who knows everything, like the last man who knew everything. But in fact, what they want to do is to know a number of different kinds of things. And they're interested in the analogies between problems in one discipline and and solutions, and problems and solutions in another one. And I, I would say they have a stronger imagination than other scholars, which enables them to spot these analogies. Uh, it's like um, poets with metaphors. I mean, it means spotting similarities between what other people only see as different. It's a gift. So I think that's part of the psychological makeup, um, according to my amateurish psychology. I even want to add absent-mindedness because polymaths need a great power of concentration. They're described by their families and friends as they pick up a book and they somehow suck the contents out in half an hour. But they do this because they've got this incredible concentration. But because they're concentrating on the problem and they're living in the everyday world, what the other people notice is the failure of the polymaths to notice what's happening around them, absent-mindedness. But their mind, if it's absent from ordinary everyday life, is extremely present. Next to the problem they're trying to solve. So when the mathematician Henri Poincaré, except I shouldn't just call him a mathematician because he was good at so many other things, he went for a walk in Paris and came back holding a birdcage. And his wife said, why have you got this birdcage in your hand? And he said, I've got no idea I was solving a mathematical problem. Some people might think it's a curse. His wife probably thought it was a curse. But that is part of the
0: clue to his achievement. So does that mean there's a trade-off, right? I mean, the the generalists uh, and polymaths can see things that specialists can't, but specialists can see things that the generalists can't, right? So each type of knowledge comes with its own form of of ignorance or or blindness? On one side, you've got the bird's
1: eye view, and you see the big picture. You can't see the details, and then the other... Let's say the worms I view with the details are very close, but I'm not sure that the worm can see the sky and can't see the big picture. We need both. But we need each side to acknowledge the strengths as well as the weaknesses of the other one. I think polymaths are better at acknowledging that the specialists have
0: valuable knowledge than the other way around. Now, if you were designing an organization or a system of knowledge production that was intended to increase or maximize the amount of knowledge production would you have some kind of optimal ratio of generalists and specialists
1: <laughs> no i i, I don't think we need more than a minority of, of generalists but the more specialization there is the more we need these people and then my worry for the future is that the niche in which these generalists flourish are becoming fewer than they used to be. I mean, for a while, it was easy. You could make the polymath a librarian. I mean, it wasn't an accident that Leibniz was a librarian, as well as a philosopher who was particularly interested in the organization of all forms of knowledge,
0: and that he studied so many other subjects. So the question is: Do we have an institutional kind of bias in favor of the the specialist? I mean, in, within the university, where is the place for the for the generalist, for the polymath? Is it is it only for emeritus professors? That's it. So th- we
1: were talking about the value of institutions, and there are not many institutions today that nurture polymaths. But maybe Institutes for Advanced Study do. And at one time, there was only one place with that name in Princeton in the 1930s. It's a good sign that in many different countries in the world there is an in Institute for Advanced Study or something with a very similar name or Centre for Interdisciplinary Research. It's true that Most people can only spend a year in these places, and that can be a good idea, that you get people who normally work within the departmental constraints but would like to think beyond them and give them a year where their salary is being paid by the institute and not by their university. But permanent niche, this is more and more difficult. And what worried me when I was... Doing this collective biography of 500 polymaths was not being able to think of any who were born after about the year 1960. Of course, this might just be an old man saying the young men are, oh, the young people now are not up to it. But people born in 1960 are quite substantially younger than me, and I still admit they're polymaths. The problem is finding the still younger ones.
0: Because we're gonna need them. Well I mean doesn't that mean we just have to define it differently? I mean, we talk about who was the last person to know everything, right? And <laughs> whether it was Pierre Bale or Kircher. I mean, that's unrealistic. I mean, those guys knew, for instance, biology and chemistry and theology. Today, to be a polymath, you you presumably, like Herb Simon, could just limit yourself to the social science. I mean, I don't think Herb Simon knew much about optics and chemistry and astrophysics, right? But he, he knew a lot, right? So does it mean that just with the exponential increase in knowledge to become a polymath, you, you can maybe carve off a subset of areas of expertise? I think what's happened
1: is that it in order to talk about polymaths in the, from the 20th century onwards, you have to lower the bar. And polymath only means many disciplines, many is becoming several. If somebody is good at philosophy and sociology and anthropology, like Pierre Bourdieu, I'm happy to say, to call Bourdieu a polymath, even though he might not have been able to answer a simple question about chemistry. So you lower the bar, but you still are able to identify people. Uh, on, On the most creative side, these people do innovative work in at least three disciplines. But of course, there's also the class of passive polymath. They really know what's going on in five or six, but they're not making any contribution themselves. They, of course, would be the ideal librarians of today if it wasn't for the fact that librarianship has become like another discipline. And you have to be a librarian with very rare exceptions. You've got to have a degree or diploma in librarianship, which stops you having studied history at university or any other subject. And I very much regret that
0: but even the folks who were the last people to to know everything i mean their knowledge was limited to book knowledge i doubt that maybe castiglione could go and set a trap for a for a bear or sail a ship or or i mean there probably was a lot of practical knowledge that these folks lacked not to mention their lack of awareness of say chinese culture or indian culture or the, they, they certainly had some parochialism that you talk about, right parochialism of whether it be uh, time or place.
1: And I would go further in this direction and say even in the Middle Ages where polymathy in universities, you could say it was the default setting. Mm-hmm. but but be, being a, 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 an academic polymath like Thomas Aquinas did not mean that you knew everything that was known in medieval culture. At this time. You have to think of all the practical knowledges, implicit knowledges, how to be a knight, how to be a midwife, uh, how to be a a peasant. I don't think Thomas Aquinas knew anything about these different forms of knowledge, but he'd mastered the whole of academic knowledge in his place and time, being totally unaware of what's going on in China, where there are scholars like him who in turn are unaware that in Europe, there's somebody called Aquinas, who's very well-read. The small problem of not being able to name the last man who knew everything is actually part of the big one that probably since the Stone Age, it would be impossible to find anybody who knew everything that people around him in his culture
0: knew. Now, you talk about the the Commonwealth of of Learning or the Republic of, of Letters. I mean, this is pretty much expanded to include anybody with internet access today, right? How does that change things? I mean, presumably, it's no longer a question of access, whereas in the Middle Ages, obtaining these manuscripts was very difficult. I mean, could anyone become a polymath if they wanted to perhaps not a very good one but they could someone set out to to do this simply from the privacy of their own home if they as long as they have an internet connection
1: let's say that the playing field has become much more level it's very clear to me that past polymaths usually came from the upper social classes and if they hadn't the their chance of access would be much lower. But it would be a good idea also to live in one of a number of big cities which had good libraries and that if you spent your life in the countryside, even if you were upper class, then that very much limited you. But access isn't enough, that's the problem, and I don't know how far formal education is responding to the challenge of the internet. Because when I retired, this wasn't yet a problem at university level. But the problem of when you're reading paper books, then if they're serious, they have footnotes. And if you you wonder, is this true? Or at least, where did this person get this information from? You go back to the source. I mean, a lot of my life as a historian of ideas and knowledge is reading a statement in one book, seeing the footnote, going to that book, looking at the footnotes in that book, and you go backwards and trying to find who was it that first said something or whatever it is until you're satisfied. But if you grow up just thinking that you click on Wikipedia you need to be taught that you can't trust anything uh, that you read online, just as you can't trust anything that you read in print or indeed in manuscript. But manuscript was easier because you usually knew who wrote it. The trouble about the extra trouble with the internet is the, a lot of anonymity. If I don't know who's telling me this, I can't make allowances for the prejudices of that person and I hope teachers are telling students this, when you read any statement, ask yourself, why is this person telling me this? Has that person got some special agenda, something to gain? Does he want to persuade me of something? I know there are courses in this kind of critical information theory. What I don't know is what proportion of schools or indeed universities are actually trying to teach students to be aware in this way
0: that they need it. Certainly not enough. (laughs) I would argue not enough. But look, I mean, you talk about how this idea of a history of knowledge has emerged in the last 30, 40 years. And you talk about the founding of a history of ignorance. I mean, is the history of ignorance just the complement to the history of knowledge? I mean, doesn't the history of knowledge imply a history of ignorance? Yes, I I think you
1: can't um, have one without the other. And in my search each time I published a book on one aspect of knowledge, I wanted to try looking at these problems from a different angle. And and so precisely after writing a book about the polymaths who knew more than other people, I thought it might be interesting to turn the problem upside down. This is not infrequently been true for historians in the past, as I'm sure historians of memory at a certain point discovered forgetting it. It enriched their studies. I once did work on the history of language, and it led me to write a short essay on history of silence, or better still, silence is in the plural. And so, polymathy and knowledge in general, led me to this question of, instead of who knows what, who doesn't know what. And so I started with simple ignorance. And the great challenge, if you like to put it grandly, the epistemological challenge is, where do you find the evidence? I was writing and I imagined a real old-fashioned British historian of the kind that I used to meet when I was young, who simply says, where are the sources? How can you have the sources for something that isn't there? Defining ignorance, as I do traditionally, as an absence. But you can study absences. You just have to find some indirect way of approaching them. When I wrote the book about the history of knowledge from Diderot to Wikipedia, I got interested in loss of knowledge. And that meant I I looked at the Encyclopedia Britannica in number, a number of editions to see what dropped out. That's one indirect approach. Or every major discovery, Columbus or scientific discovery, reminds you that before that discovery, People didn't know that particular thing. People in Europe thought there were three continents. People didn't know the law of gravity before Newton and so on. And in those ways, you can talk about um, ignorance. You you infer the person from the shadow cast on the ground when you can't see the person, him or herself. It's, it's, it's that sort of way. And then I got fascinated in it for its own sake, and especially in the lack of knowledge among decision makers. By that time, I was doing research, and Trump was the president of your country, and Bolsonaro was the president of my wife's country. and That was a vivid reminder that people in a position to take enormously important decisions with big consequences may not know very much about the situation. And then in in politics, that led me to think about structures of government and the way in which information fails to be passed either up or down when organizations are hierarchical. I discovered that this had been very well studied by business people. And there are these books about and, and knowledge in the firm. And um, I think the chairman of Hewlett Packard said, saying wistfully, if only we knew what we know at HP. He was aware of what they call the iceberg problem, that right at the top, he's missing all sorts of things about his own firm. But then you translate that into politics and especially it's even more dangerous in politics than in business to tell your boss something that he does not want to know. Imagine going to Stalin and saying, I'm afraid your five year plan has not reached the targets that you designated. So that means that people filter information. So people at the top may think they know all the important things. And so more than half the book then turned out to be about decision making. And I hadn't thought about military history since I was a schoolboy when it was a hobby of mine. But returning to military history and realizing the importance of ignorance, most obviously on the battlefield. Of course, there aren't these pitched battles now, but where you have all the forces in the plane facing one another. A general on each hilltop with the um, telescope or whatever, and trying to guess what the other side's going to do. And of course, both sides are ignorant, but you could say it's a relative question. The general who is less ignorant than his opposite number is the one that's going to win the battle. And the beauty from the intellectual point of view of studying military history is that ignorance on the battlefield is punished visibly and swiftly. In politics it takes longer, which means the politicians can get away with their mistakes longer, but it might have even more profound consequences. I got into decision-making and the nice thing about it is it connects history of knowledge with general history. More clearly, than other studies in the history of knowledge. So it breaks down one more barrier. Because one great thing about history in the last couple of generations is the interest of different historians in other disciplines—economic historians studying economics, social historians studying sociology. And the great price has been that in having a fruitful dialogue with their colleagues in the neighboring discipline, they no longer speak to their other historical colleagues. But this the history of knowledge and ignorance has the the potential for connecting things. All these different practical areas where decisions are taken, that is influencing the history of the world, and knowledge is playing this crucial part, or the absence of knowledge is playing this crucial part. Dividing up an empire when you don't know where any of the places are, as in the Paris Peace Conference of 1919 was an example that amused me, but it was also tragic in its consequences, as we are still well aware, whether it was the breakup of the Russian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, or the Habsburg Empire big problems were inherited all around.
0: Well, indeed, that area of organizational economics and and information economics, that's sort of my discipline. But does the growth of knowledge necessarily imply also the growth of ignorance? I mean, I think a lot of people who do history of science would think that you have just an ever-increasing body of knowledge. And it doesn't necessarily imply ignorance. But it seems like the more we learn new things, the more we necessarily have to forget old things. I mean, it's impossible to even understand what it was like to view the world as being flat. You know, it's impossible to understand what it's like to view the world as being animated by spirits, let's say. And we have languages that are disappearing and ways of looking at the world that are disappearing almost on a daily basis, right?
1: What fascinated me in the course of research and the point point I made a lot of in the book is that new knowledges are always associated with new ignorances, and that this is inevitable given that human beings still sleep for eight hours a night, except for a few polymaths, and they don't spend all their time acquiring knowledge. So that if they acquire some of the new knowledges, for example, about IT, and then they've got less time to acquire some of the old knowledges. So at this macro level, I think this is inevitable. But at a micro level, I don't think that if a scientist makes a new discovery, people instantly forget about the situation before. Though maybe a generation later, something has been dropped out of the curriculum that was there before, just as it will drop out of the Encyclopaedia Britannica. So there might be a tension between the micro and the macro here, but I hold to the macro generalization about new knowledges in the plural being associated with new ignorances. But I have to say, it wasn't my idea that I picked it up from C.S. Lewis, this English literary critic and historian whom I much admired when I was at school. Who wrote this book about Renaissance English literature and called the first chapter New Knowledges and New Ignorances?
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's the book that starts off with looking at the celestial dome, right? Yeah. Okay, so, but you also make a distinction between kind of known unknowns and unknown unknowns, right? And you use the example of the map where you have terra incognita, right? And I mean, is there a, a big difference between. When you know what you don't know, or you think you know, and you're not even aware of what it is that you don't know.
1: Yes, and I would agree with either Mark Twain or Will Rogers, who says that the real danger is not what you um, realize you don't know, but what you think you know, and it ain't so. But just as as dangerous, though, is this will not to know, which you find um, probably... A little bit in all of us, but a lot of it in some of us. And Unfortunately, some of those some are people in positions of power where refusing to acknowledge global warming is obviously going to have consequences. Maybe not
0: as serious as global warming itself, but quite serious enough. Right. So you talk about the problem when the people who know things don't have power, and the people who have power don't know things, right? That's it. Those who
1: know can't act and those who uh, act don't know. and That's one of the tragedies of the human condition. It's not something that I think one can sort out by positive action, at least in the short term, something we just have to
0: uh, live with and try and find our way around. Now, you talk about, you quote Comte, who said that it's possible to be A specialist in generalism, right? (laughs) To to specialize in as a generalist. I mean, that seems that seems a bit like a an oxymoron, right? Yeah, I think this is a good um,
1: definition of the generalist. And some people, I think one of the first people to call himself that was Lewis Mumford, who uh, is a very good example of a polymath active in the twenties and thirties. But I think he thought that polymath was too grand a word, and that generalist sounded a bit more modest. It was just one task like other specialist tasks. But anyway, no doubt that we still need these people, and we still need a niche inside and outside the universities for these generalists to be continue
0: to be active. So what does it mean to be an historian? I mean, sometimes people say that historians have no independent methodology or no independent set of ideas that are brought to the table. You've got sociologists, you've got anthropologists, you've got economists, and then you can be an economic historian or a sociological historian. What, what is it that, that it makes historians different? What do they uniquely bring to the table that would help us to understand anything, including the creation of knowledge or innovation?
1: Well, one thing that historians try to do or Maybe uh, some historians try to do at least is when they examine the world that they're living in, they examine trends that are important in the present and they try to place them in the perspective of the long term. You could say that they have a function which is almost opposite that of journalists. Journalists, are, uh, I don't want to sound cynical, but j- j- journalists, in a sense, make a living by telling people. That something that's just happened is totally different from anything that happened in the past. You could say it's their occupational hazard to do this because they need headlines that grab attention, otherwise they wouldn't be headlines and the newspapers wouldn't sell. And historians have to fight against the opposite problem, which is to say there's nothing new under the sun. And Of course, each side has its value, but each side without the other, it's very dangerous. So historians are people who specialize in telling you that the problem that you think is unique is actually one that has occurred a number of times in the past. And that's the most specifically historical. Otherwise, I think historians are like sociologists and even more like anthropologists because they try to understand the mindset of people in other cultures. And this is an absolutely indispensable kind of knowledge which we need more and more in a globalizing world where we're constantly meeting people from other cultures, constantly misunderstanding them, constantly being misunderstood by them. So, the the different disciplines where There's an interest in the other, looking at problems and events from the perspective of another culture, another side. Those different disciplines in the humanities and social sciences are absolutely indispensable. You can't be more indispensable, but if it was possible grammatically to say it, it's and um, even more in, indispensable now than it was in the past.
0: And Is there a similarity between understanding the world from the perspective of different people in the same moment and different people in different times in history? Is there a, a similarity in this perspective taking across geographies and across time periods?
1: I would say there's a very strong similarity, and, but a number of my colleagues have agreed And one of the signs that they agree is the fact that more more of them quote this phrase from the beginning of an English novel The past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. One of the kinds of history that, rather controversially, I used to practice before the history of knowledge is what the history of mentalities, where in Britain, where there was a lot of suspicion of this kind of History. They used to call it the history of mentalité, meaning it's some funny thing the French do, but we British, we don't do it. But what attracted me to it and what made me think it was important is this idea that you've got to know what are the assumptions on which people work, what do they take for granted, and that these vary enormously in time, just as they vary enormously. In place, and that it's true for the contemporary world. So you you have the Americans not understanding the Russians, and the Russians not understanding the Americans, because not enough people are mentally inhabiting the other person's point of view, at least temporarily. Just as a way of working out what's going on, it's a simple exercise that you can, I think, learn to do. So maybe some people are better at it than others, and
0: probably this is the case. So, by, by studying the text, you may be able to see what they don't know that they know they don't know. But in order to figure out what they don't know that they don't know they don't know, you have to bracket it with perspectives from other periods and places. Right? That's it. The
1: great danger are the so-called known unknown unknowns. But of course. This is what both Aristotle and Confucius were saying rather a, a long time ago. The most important thing is to know what you
0: don't know. Peter, I think that you'll certainly know a lot more <laughs> if you read some of your books. I have really enjoyed uh, the, the, the Polymath. It really set the bar pretty high for me. I've got a long way to go if I want to get that descriptor on on me. Also, Ignorance, uh, A Global History, and so many others. Thank you so much. For joining me.
1: Thank you for inviting me. It was nice to meet you online.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.